What went wrong with globalization, and how can we address its fault lines? How did globalization's image as a force pushing forward the vision of an interconnected, prosperous, and open world become so tarnished and discredited? Regrettably, public discourse and media accounts lump a lot of divergent forces into a single notion called globalization. However, not all of them deserve equal treatment when trying to explain unpleasant outcomes such as job losses, mortgage defaults, or a growing sense of insecurity. Equally, not all of them can take the same amount of credit for the remarkable progress we discussed in the first part of this chapter. For instance, product market liberalization and deregulation come under the header of microeconomics. Destabilizing international capital flows and self-defeating fiscal austerity in the eurozone are part of macroeconomics. Lower transport costs and new labor-saving technologies fall under the rubric of exogenous structural change. Globalization is not some irresistible force of nature that cannot be shaped, and there is scant evidence that it requires reductions in social spending, the slashing of corporate governance regulations, or the cutting of certain categories of taxes, such as estate or inheritance tax. Merging together all three components, microeconomic reforms aimed at creating efficient market structures, macroeconomic policymaking, and external changes in the domain of transport and technology, and collectively referring to them as globalization, only causes confusion, because it makes the choice a binary one. Either you are for it or against it. This is totally counterproductive, since political forces are able to use this confusion to advocate for the reversal of this process of opening up. The rising popularity of such groups might throw the baby of liberal international economic order out with the bathwater of bad macroeconomic policy. Essentially, the lack of a credible defence of liberal economic policies and institutions such as the WTO or the EU as well as the silent acceptance of bad macroeconomic decisions, like poorly coordinated fiscal policies among Eurozone members, opens the door for populists to falsely claim that liberal policies are at the root of the problem. Since the early 2000s, there has been a considerable surge in populism across the globe, and it has accelerated again following the global financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Among a sample of 20 countries with at least one populist party, such parties' voting shares more than doubled between the early 2000s and the mid-2010s. Interestingly, a backlash against globalization has occurred in the domains of trade, technology and migration, but not in financial integration. Why is this so? In the domain of tangible or real integration, one can easily identify so-called perpetrators and victims, which is not so convenient in the case of financial integration. The narrative constructed when discussing trade and similar issues can be very salient and conducive to political mobilisation along the lines of us versus them, foreign migrants, foreign goods and foreign technology possess the air of tangibility and one can exclusively attribute negative outcomes to them, whether merited or not. Economic anxiety and distributional struggles amplified by globalization, definitely create a basis for the so-called 
demand side of populism. However, the relative availability of societal cleavages and narratives peddled by populist politicians also channel existing grievances, and this constitutes the supply side of populism. On the other hand, hot money flows, which is the core tenet of expanding financial globalization and is empirically related to greater incidences of financial crises over time, is a less politically divisive issue. There are several potential answers to this puzzle. First, these flows frequently encompass the very money invested by average citizens into asset management institutions, pension funds and insurance companies, and crisis perpetrators are not readily identifiable. Second, they are more impersonal in nature, as opposed to easily identifiable targets such as banks. Even in this case, it is very difficult to disentangle the real culprit behind a crisis, since one needs two sides for reckless lending and borrowing to take place. Therefore, political constituencies across the world do a poor job of demanding that their political representatives find better financial architecture to regulate destabilizing transnational capital flows. If we add to this the fact that elites in several Western countries have discredited themselves, not only by permitting financial excesses, but also by failing to fairly allocate the ensuing losses according to free market principles, then we can far better understand the murky undercurrents undermining liberal democracy and the market economy. Unfortunately, this puts the world on track for a much less beneficial kind of globalization, while real sources of progress are undercut. Contrary to the anti-globalization proselytizing of the political left and right, we can undertake corrective actions to compensate the losers of globalization and provide the necessary social glue holding our societies and states together. Global plutocracy and waves of populism are not in our destiny. Those on the left should be aware that aggressive attempts to eliminate inequality may prove to be expensive and pointless. Additional measures which divert resources from those with more human capital to those with less, bypassing the criteria of achievement and merit, undermine dynamism. In the long run, preferential treatment of underperformers may be worse than inequality itself. Innovation and growth are indispensable for funding programs that come more broadly or narrowly under the banner of the welfare state, and which are so cherished by those left of the political centre. One should primarily view bad inequality as the main enemy, not inequality per se. On the other hand, those sitting on the right should realise how important it is to carefully manage social safety nets that diminish the sense of economic insecurity. Major government programmes such as education and healthcare are not necessarily beasts that need to be starved, but do require proper functioning with efficient and fair provision. Paying reasonable taxes and donating money to properly designed and evaluated programmes is something we all have to do in order to keep the achievements of an enlightened society. Evolving social norms should support that policy course. Well-designed, liberal and centrist solutions can reconcile the market economy's vicissitudes through social cohesion. Nordic countries are the best example of how to tackle this false dilemma. 
efficient spending on education and social transfers. For instance, all EU member states have been exposed to direct or indirect pressures for reforms which are related to globalization and liberalization, but some of them fare much better due to smart policy solutions. Policymakers and citizens should remember three important lessons to keep the wheels of globalization turning. First, the notion of a market lumps together markets for goods, labor, and capital. We have learned so far that the market for potatoes is not the same as the market for loans or capital transactions. More regulation in the latter domain does not preclude more deregulation in the former, which is indeed necessary for continued dynamism and progress. Product and labor market liberation, as well as rising openness to trade, have brought about tremendous progress. Overly strict regulation is not necessary to achieve more egalitarian outcomes. Hence, a decrease in global inequality and a sharp increase in within-country inequalities are not inevitable outcomes. Second, it is important to be Keynesian during both parts of the business cycle. One cannot spend incessantly regardless of the underlying macroeconomic conditions. However, this does not lessen the need for better international fiscal coordination between debtor and creditor countries to distribute the burden of adjustment more fairly, as exemplified by the recent Eurozone crisis. Third, progressive ends are not the same as blunt and statist means to those ends. Addressing the existing problems with the heavy hand of the state can serve to aggravate them. In some cases, we need a more market-based solution, while in others, we need more enlightened state interventions. However, the two are inseparable as explained earlier in our discussion on climate change. Of course, we should not forget that globalization sometimes comes with its downsides, as already explained when warning of the dangers of excessive capital mobility and the ensuing debt pollution created by too much financial deregulation. We should always be aware that financial globalization can be a mixed blessing. However, there are two more issues that need to be addressed via the means of international cooperation, because they act as fiscal termites to the healthy functioning of the welfare state in the long run. First, there is evidence that globalization makes it harder to raise the taxes needed to provide public goods. Unbridled tax competition among nation-states leads to the undesirable erosion of corporate tax revenues which hampers the maintenance of public sectors at economically efficient levels. Ultimately, it drives market concentration and monopolization because it tilts the playing field in favor of incumbent multinational corporations and against smaller potential competitors. In that regard, EU member states should spearhead new efforts for taxing multinationals according to where they generate their cash flow or add value. Furthermore, tackling tax havens by pushing for global agreements on transparency in financial transfers would also help. Second, some policymakers in the West have underestimated the effect of unfettered migration on the weakening of the nation-state's capacity to ensure growth with equity. President Macron's recent statement that it is necessary to distinguish between deserving asylum seekers fleeing war 
and economic migrants, in order to stop voters running into the arms of far-right populists, is an important realisation that the process needs to be well-managed. More than 750 million people worldwide would migrate if they could. It is also sane to assume that developed countries lack the necessary absorptive capacity to handle such a large flow. Recent recommendations by renowned economists such as Branko Milanovic and Danny Roderick try to reconcile both the risks of unfettered migration with the moral imperative to help the global poor. They suggest that migration be changed so that it is much more akin to temporary labour without automatic access to citizenship and the entire gamut of welfare benefits. Both issues can be successfully dealt with by a means of effective international cooperation so that the momentum of globalization can be sustained without jeopardizing the very progress it creates. <laughs>